0: All right, Um, if you have a Bible, find uh, John chapter 12. This morning we'll round out our look at this chapter. We just dipped into it just a bit last Sunday. We'll finish it today. And with this chapter, we we have entered into the, narratively speaking, into the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Next Sunday, when we begin chapter 7, excuse me, 13, uh, we will come literally to the last hours, even though we're several chapters away from the end. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and then even in, to the end of the book really cover the span of just two or three days. So uh, most of those, just the, a few hours of a single day, a single night in the next day. Um, but in our passage today, we're not quite that far yet. We're in the last week leading up to the Passover feast, which will be the occasion of his, of his death, and not surprisingly, I'm sure, we'll, to you, we'll see very thoroughly in the coming chapters the connection between Jesus' crucifixion and death and that Passover feast. But um, in the chapter today, chapter 12, John is still building the case about Jesus to show in His storyline of His gospel how what is about to happen, His, his death, His crucifixion Etc. His the ordeal that he's about to undergo, how all that that is about to hap- that's about to happen is not going to happen um, accidentally or unexpectedly or out of his control, but that, that um, he's building the case to show that when, when we get to that point, you will know exactly what the writer of the book of Acts was talking about in chapter 2 when he said that all that took place was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and that Acts chapter 4 That the religious leaders did exactly what God had predestined to take place. Um, Yeah, we're going to see, and we're going to see in this chapter, in this passage today, that it's not just clear foreknowledge as to what was about to happen to him, that's very clearly laid out here ahead of time, but also, especially here, a reminder of who he is to whom it was about to happen soon to be crucified. So, we always take our, our cues in understanding any given text that we come to by the words of the text itself. And, um, and here's how I, I arrived at what we're going to focus on today. As I read and studied, I just want you to see it with your own eyes so that you know the kinds of things to look for when you're studying your, your own Bible by yourself. I always pay very careful attention to the, um, the words of the text. How did I? How did I arrive at the theme of what we're going to think about today? Well, a couple of things. First of all, notice with me, we haven't read the passage yet. We'll read it in just a second. But look, for example, if you're open to chapter 12, um, at verse 16. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, and by the way, he had just quoted from Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things, that is, these things that Zechariah the prophet wrote hundreds of years ago, these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So he's made the case that the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, the Old Testament was written. It doesn't just have a connection to Jesus. It was written about Jesus ahead of time. And now, now skip later to verse uh, Verse 41. And now he's talking about a different Old Testament prophet. And it said, Isaiah saw these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So he's talking about Isaiah talking about Jesus. So I look at the text, and when I think about what am I going to bring out of this text today, well then, if I'm going to be honest to the text, twice it's told me that even when we're talking about the Old Testament, they're talking about Jesus, they're shining a light on Jesus Ta- referring to Jesus, then what I need to tell you today needs to zero in on Jesus. Otherwise, I'm missing the point of the text. If the Old Testament prophets were talking about Jesus and John wants you to know that, then I should need to tell you that. All right? And then the other thing, so what are we going to say about Jesus? Well, I'll tell you in just a second. When you say, what, do, what does he want to say about Jesus? Well, that's when you look for repeated words or repeated ideas, repeated phrases, and we find that here, and the repetition that we'll find here focuses on the kingship of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus. Um, the imagery is very soon, with the next chapter and the following chapters for the rest of the book, is gonna, the imagery is going to shift to Jesus, our Passover lamb, as he goes to the cross on the Passover, substitutionary sacrifice, um, John wants to make sure that before we get to that point, we remember very clearly that this one, sacrificed in the place of sinners, is the King and Lord over all things. And the one that believers look to as their Savior is the one to whom every knee will bow as Lord. So that's our focus this morning is going to, and from this text is going to be on the kingship of Christ. And we'll try to see what John is trying to teach us about that. But we need to read the passage in full first. So if you found John 12, I think you all have. Uh, Let's read verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Uh, Follow along with me as I read aloud, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, See that you are getting nothing. You're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said uh, that it had thundered, said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, So Jesus said to them, the, the light is among you for a little while longer. Well, Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid, and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah 53, 1. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, and he quotes Isaiah 6, 10, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, for fear of the, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore... I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We confess it. We believe it. Believe it because your word demonstrates itself to be all those things. Would you please give us eyes to see the truth in this passage? Give us eyes to see Jesus clearly you give us minds to understand what John has to say to us here. Give us hearts to embrace that truth and love it, see its importance. Would you give us wills to obey whatever it leads us to do in response. Give us all ears to hear, I pray. Give me the help that I need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as as I said, as I thought about the overarching emphases of this passage, because we can't just minutely delve into Every, every verse of this passage. It's just too long. But if we step back and say, what are the overarching emphases here? There seem to be three. I've already told you they center on Jesus and specifically the kingship of Jesus. So one of those clear emphases uh, that we'll think about first, I'll call the anticipation of the king, the anticipation of the king. And, and we'll see this as we focus on the different Old Testament passages that John cites here. He cites passages from Psalms, from Zechariah, and from Isaiah, showing that what, it was, what is being played out in real time here in this narrative was foreshadowed and anticipated hundreds and hundreds of years ahead of time in the prophets and in the Old Testament. So the anticipation of the king. A second emphasis then, again just big picture looking at this passage, flowing out of the first one is the victory of the king. This one we need to think about carefully because at first glance it it can almost seem like a a backwards kind of of reasoning. I'll explain what I mean when we get there. So the anticipation of the king, the victory of the king, and thirdly at the end of the, the passage we'll see what John has to say about the reception of the king. Some who outright rejected him, some who came close to faith but stopped short, and then some who believed. So that being said, let's take a closer look at the passage and think first about the anticipation of the king as John weaves Old Testament text into this passage. So first of all, I said it, and I showed you where we get the focus on Jesus, but let's be clear on where we see the, the kingship of Jesus highlighted here. Um, I told you to look for repeated words or phrases or ideas, and that's how I see it here. You see it right off the bat near the beginning. It begins with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the crowds, as he enters, the crowds cry out in verse 13. Look there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they identify him not as... Uh, they could have not identified him as a number of different things. He has a number of different titles in the New Testament. This time, though, even the King of Israel. He, he is the one who's coming. And then right after that... Uh, John then turns his, um, to his interpretation of this event, and he points out that Jesus entering into Jerusalem in this way, riding on a donkey, is, is, is a fulfillment of, of what another prophet said. He quotes, he quotes in verse 15, Zechariah 9, 9, that in part says, as John quotes it here, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. So, I mean, just right out of the gates, twice, Jesus, in this, in this climactic moment, the climactic moment of the whole passage is right here at the beginning when he enters Jerusalem. In this climactic moment, not once but twice, is he identified as your king who's coming. So, um, we want to press into that, that clear theme that John is highlighting here and ask, what point is he trying to make uh, by it. And, and clearly the first point that he makes, just looking at the text, is, is that all of this was anticipated in the Old Testament. Anticipated ahead of time. Old Testament that you have in your possession that you can read with your own eyes. There are three Old Testament passages, well technically four, but the third and fourth are both from Isaiah, the same prophet, that are quoted here. And I think with each one, a different aspect of of this anticipation is Old Testament anticipation is brought out like what? Okay, let's go back to verse 13. So we just saw the crowds chant as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, but they're not just chanting anything, something they made up, they're chanting the words of Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Um, and in so doing, in quoting that Old Testament passage, they are anticipating the coming of this king that a king would come, right? So they quote Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Blessed is he who comes. In the original context of Psalm 118, if you read that psalm, and I hope you do in your own time later, take notes and go back and read it, you can tell that somebody wrote this psalm, but it's almost like they wrote it as if it's the voice of all the people speaking. The voice of all the people speaking to the Lord. And it's like all the people are crying out to the Lord, trusting in the Lord to save them, to come to their rescue, to help them. And, it, and the emphasis in that psalm is on someone who is coming in the name of the Lord to give them that victory and that salvation. They're waiting and they're anticipating someone to come in the name of the Lord, to bring that help that they're asking the Lord to give. And um, it, it could be that when they cry, cry out, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and they're, they're crying out in the words of this psalm, it could be, like we've said several times, that they um, thought Jesus was going to be a certain kind of king. They had a certain conception of the king who would come that would be more earthly in nature, whose, whose, whose mission would be more earthly in nature, who would solve a more immediate problem to them, which would be dealing with the Romans who ruled over them. That's the kind of salvation they thought they needed. But John's going to show that, that he was much more than that. They rightly anticipated his coming, but perhaps they didn't quite realize all that he was, right? He wasn't just going to be some military earthly leader. And also, uh, just like we saw, John says in the next Old Testament passage that he was fulfilling another prophecy by coming into Jerusalem. He wasn't just fulfilling Psalm 118, but this actually is a, there's another prophecy, which is a climactic prophetic highlight here, um, and that is Zechariah 9.9. And we know from here, we know from the other gospels that Jesus uh, deliberately arranged the details of his entrance into Jerusalem that day, specifically so that he would fit the prophecy of Zechariah 9:9. And when you look at Zechariah 9:9, as he quotes it here, you might think it's basically just a restatement of what Psalm, the Psalms passage we just read, emphasizing the the coming of this king, anticipating that a king would come. I mean, if you if you if you just look at verse 15, fear not. Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So maybe it too is just anticipating that one day a king would come and bring salvation. But I think if we take a closer look, we see more going on. Uh, If you're if you're familiar with the Zechariah nine passage, I'm not going to assume that you are, but I will assume this that you're such a good student of the scriptures that when you're reading your Bible on your own and you're reading in John 12, and you see that John quotes an Old Testament passage, you pause, right? And you look at your little cross-reference, and you see Zechariah 9, 9, and you hold your place here and find Zechariah 9, 9 and you read that passage, and you just, I'm, I'm going to assume that's what you do when you read your Bible. And you're going to do that from now on. But uh, you might realize if you did that, that what John quotes here from Zechariah, he doesn't quote the whole verse. Uh, he, uh, I don't think that he doesn't have the whole thing in mind. I think he's just quoting the part in view of the whole. Uh, why is that important? Because I think the rest of the original text of Zechariah nine nine is is instructive here. Because you see an additional emphasis, not just on his coming but on his victory when he comes. What does the rest of the Zechariah 9, 9 passage say? Here is it in its entirety. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. That's what John quotes. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, the, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not only is he coming, but he's righteous when he comes. And not only is he coming, and not only is he righteous, but he's coming with salvation, right? When the the people, Old Testament people, and even the people in in Jesus' day anticipated the coming of of the Messiah, they anticipated that he would be a king and a victorious king at that. That's why they were so elated by His entrance, righteous in bringing salvation. And again, though, a lot of people, even when they anticipated what the Old Testament was pointing them to, they probably thought about them mostly in earthly terms. I mean, just to see how pervasive this idea was and this misconception, just think about the question that Jesus' own disciples asked Jesus After his resurrection, right before his ascension. So he's died, risen, walked around for 40 days, ascending. Like, right before he ascends, what is the question they ask him in Acts 1-6? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still looking like, when are you going to overthrow the Romans? Earthly. Earthly king, earthly kingdom. This, But Jesus will say later in this gospel that his kingdom was not of this world. Now, I don't want to say that, um, that Jesus' kingdom is merely heavenly and has nothing to do with this world. That's not what I'm saying. But Jesus' kingdom does not arise out of this world. This, The, the kingdom of God comes down to this earth from heaven, right? And so... Uh, we will see, I think, in the last Old Testament passage that John cites here, that the anticipation should have been for more than just an earthly king. They shouldn't have just anticipated his coming and his victory, but also his glory, his glory. If you look look a little later in the passage, John quotes from two passages in Isaiah. The first, in verse 38, has to do with, he quotes Isaiah 53 1, and it has to do with those not recognizing the Messiah when he came and thus not believing him. Um, Lord, who has believed? All right. So, so when, and if you, if you read Isaiah 53, if, if somebody just read Isaiah 53 and you didn't know what it said ahead of time, and they didn't tell you it was from Isaiah 53, you would think it was from the New Testament. It is that specific about the about the, the death uh, of Jesus Christ and his, his life. But the second passage that he quotes from Isaiah is in verse 40. It's a much stronger passage that we'll look at more closely in a minute. It's from Isaiah 6. Now, he quotes Isaiah 6.10 there in verse 40. But let's, don't just think about that isolated verse. Are you familiar with Isaiah 6? I mean, it's one of the big chapters in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6 recounts when Isaiah had a vision of the Lord God, right? Here's how how Isaiah 6 begins. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him Stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'll say this for those who haven't been here very long and probably haven't heard me explain this. Some of you who've been here a while have. When they cry out and say, holy, 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 there's a significance to that threefold repetition. In the Hebrew language in which that is written, Hebrew lacks a word that we have and use often. It's the word very, V-E-R-Y. Right? So if they wanted to say something was good or very good, they would just repeat the word. It's good, good right, um, if they wanted to say it is the best, maximally good, the could not be better, they would repeat it, repeat it three times. It is good, good, good. That's why Jesus would often say in the Gospels, truly, truly I say to you. You get that? Um, so when, the, when they cry out in this vision of the Lord that he is holy, 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 They are saying, He is as holy as holiness can be. That's the vision that Isaiah receives. That's what he sees. And then in that passage, the Lord tells Isaiah to go and prophesy, but here's the deal, nobody's going to believe you. Nobody's going to believe you. Their hearts will be hardened and they won't believe. And that's the part that John quotes here in in verse 40. He quotes Isaiah 6.10 that just like in Isaiah's day when Isaiah prophesied and the people didn't believe, now when Jesus comes, this king anticipated to come, when he comes and his message is preached, the people don't believe. But don't forget the context. Isaiah is receiving this message, this vision that John quotes in this vision of the Lord God. He's seeing all His glory. But what does John say about this vision in verse 41? Isaiah said these things because he saw His glory and spoke of Him. Who is the His and Him in this passage? Let's get grammatical. Who is the antecedent to the pronouns? Jesus. He's the only one in view in John 12. And so when, when he says that Isaiah saw him, the only one that makes sense in this passage is Jesus and spoke of his glory. When, 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 uh, when Isaiah received his vision of the Lord high and lifted up and the seraphim crying, holy 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 he was seeing the pre-incarnate christ that's what john says the same christ prophesied about in isaiah 53 is the same one he saw in isaiah 6. so the anticipation of the king in the old testament was thick not only could they anticipate his coming and not only his victory and that he would bring salvation when he came, but they could also anticipate and should have anticipated his glory. And not just any earthly glory, but the glory of God himself. This is the king that was here. This is the king about, about, that was about to give his life for those who sinned against him. And it will be in that act, as John continues speaking, that we see the victory of the king. Not just his anticipation, but his victory. He elaborates on that further. So when we're looking at John 12, and when we move outside of just the Old Testament passages and quotations, we see John emphasize even more strongly the victory of Jesus, I think in a couple of different ways. One has to do with the accomplishment of the salvation he was bringing, and the other has to do with the application of the salvation he was bringing. So victory in accomplishment, victory in application. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. Think about accomplishment first. John highlights the victory of Jesus in the accomplishment of salvation foretold. When Jesus declares in verse 23, if you're looking at verse 23, when he he declares the hour has come, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. For one thing, the careful reader of the Gospel of John might be a little bit surprised by that because over and over and over and over again, so far in John's gospel, you've heard, my hour has not come yet. My hour has not come yet. It's not my hour. Hour's not here. Hour is coming. But it's not, you know. And now he says, it's here. He's been saying it since chapter 2. And now it's here. But it's sort of also sort of surprising that he doesn't say, The hour has come for the Son of Man to go to the cross. Does he? He says, He doesn't say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be delivered over into the hands of men. For the Son of Man to die. For the Son of Man to be flogged. For the Son of Man to undergo an ordeal. No. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's surprising to see Jesus—this is why I said earlier, it's sort of a backwards kind of reasoning at first glance. It's sort of surprising to see Jesus referring to His coming death on a cross as a moment of glory. And not just His glory, but the glory of the Father. He says down in verses 27 and 28, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. How is is the cross the hour of his glory and victory? It looks exactly the opposite. He says how in verses 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world... Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It is through. Jesus could see what they could not see. He knew that it would be through his death that salvation would be accomplished. Satan's opposition to Christ would be defeated. The ruler of this world would be cast out, and sinners' guilt and hopelessness before Christ would be removed. Jesus, interestingly there in that verse also, uses the phrase, lift it up, I think in a double sense. On the one hand, he means it literally. They're going to lift him up on a cross. But also in a different sense, in a figurative sense, he means lift it up in the sense of being glorified. The cross he was about to endure, contrary to human evaluations, was his moment of glory when he bore the full weight of the power and penalty of sin against sinners, not to succumb to it merely, but to overcome it as the Lord and King over it. But John, that's the application. But John doesn't just show us the victory of Jesus in the, I mean, excuse me, in the, in the accomplishment of it. That's the, I just described the accomplishment. He doesn't just show us the accomplishment. He shows us the application as well. And to see it, you need to... You do need to have a couple of other biblical truths in mind as we head to the text. One biblical truth, and if, if you've been here in John, it's not surprising. One is the biblical truth of the meticulous sovereignty of God over all things. The meticulous sovereignty of God over all things. That is, again, uh, <laughs> it it's, shows up everywhere in the Bible. just like Ephesians 1.11 God works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's Ephesians 1.11. Jesus, not a sparrow, falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. It's all over the place. Meticulous sovereignty of God over all things. The other thing to keep in mind is Jesus' promise in Matthew 16.18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay? Really, that second truth is possible only because of the first one. Um, because God is meticulously sovereign over all things, He will surely build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. With those two truths in mind, then, we can look at this present chapter again and see that whenever we see the growth of the church, the movement of the church, it was God sovereignly bringing it about. As Paul would himself say later in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. And in this chapter, remember back to last week, do you remember last week when the Sanhedrin was plotting and they were plotting to put Jesus to death and then at the end of the chapter, Lazarus was kind of getting in the way so they plotted to put Lazarus to death. They're trying to put a stop to everything because people were believing in his testimony you catch in this chapter how despite all those efforts, it didn't really slow the growth of the church? Why? Because we're told in verse 17 that it wasn't just Lazarus bearing testimony, but all the people who had witnessed the miracle were bearing witness to Jesus. And I don't think it would be impractical for them to plot to put all these people to death. And the the number of believers was growing so much so that in verse 19, the Pharisees say the world has gone after him. And in verse 20, sticking out like a sore thumb at this Jewish festival, very Jewish festival, there were some Greeks. The world is coming to see Jesus. Where is he? I want to see him. Wanting to follow him. John shows us that the, the coming and the, and the victory and the glory of the King that was anticipated in the Old Testament is here coming to pass in the cross, in the accomplishment of this thing, and in, the uns- and in the application in the unstoppable growth of the church. That is not to say, read Acts, look at the world today, that is not to say that the growth of the church won't face opposition in the world. It is only to say that no opposition then or now will prevent the sovereign purpose of God for his church to come to pass and to be built. We do need to see, though, as we come to a, a close, that the mixed reaction to Christ here so that we can be sure that despite outward appearances, Christ the king will still build his church. So let me say just a word about that lastly, about the reception of the king. half of this passage is, is focused on this issue and it, it boils down I don't I need to belabor the point because we've said so much about it already in John's gospel in fact we've said a lot about believing in him we've spent more than one week on what are the reasons that people don't believe but it's, it, it poses very simply basically three different responses to Christ on the one hand you have those who, as you might expect, just outright reject Christ. Just outright reject him. They are those who begin in verse twenty-four. I mean, excuse me, thirty-four. Um, they try to reason away Christ. You know, we've we've heard from the law that you know, da, 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 just trying to explain it away. And notice the sobering language that John uses beginning in verse thirty-seven. This is, this is sobering. In verse 37, though, they did not, though He had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. They still did not believe in Him. Carefully at the words. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. They persisted in unbelief consciously, purposefully, willfully, despite all the evidence right in front of them. And then John proceeds, therefore, in verse 39, where he quotes the Isaiah 6 passage. But look carefully what he says in verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Because he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Because Isaiah prophesied, their eyes were blinded and their hearts were hardened. They could not believe. They went from they did not believe to they could not believe. They persisted in unbelief and rejection for so long that, as Paul would put it three times in Romans 1, God gave them and their hearts were hardened. That's a sobering thought that, that, that should drive us to take the gospel and take Christ seriously seriously, and thank Him. If you say, if you say that, that that kind of thought strikes a fear in your heart, thank him for that. Thank you, Lord, for that fear in my heart that draws me to faith and repentance. But we don't just see the outright and deliberate rejection. John also shows us that uh, people on, on, who, at one level, want, they at least say they want to follow Christ, they want to trust him, but whose love of the world keeps them from it. Look at what he says in verse 42. Nevertheless, m- many, many, even of the authorities believed in him. Not period, comma, but. For fear of the Pharisees did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why did this, this fear outweigh their, their desire to trust Christ and follow him? He says in verse 43, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We, it, it, we already said a whole lot about that very thing last week. In um, reasons that keep people from faith. And we talked about the Pharisees and their love of their status and their love of their privilege and the love of... So if you want to hear a longer elaboration on this, this verse, if you weren't here, go back to last week's lesson and we say more about that. That's a sobering thought as well. Jesus says in verse 48 that the gospel they rejected will judge unbelievers on that last day. But he says of those who do believe. And we've already seen the world is going after Him. Those of who, who do believe, they will be saved from the judgment, receive the forgiveness of their sins, the promise and hope of eternal life. It's just the simple gospel. So we have a few minutes before we close uh, for the next hour. We're going to pray together in groups of two or three, if you're comfortable doing that. And just a two, two couple of uh, ways to pray. That I, that I thought of the, from this. Um, I've already mentioned one. If, if, if that, the, some of the things you read in this chapter strike a fear in your heart, thank Him for that. Thank God for the gift of the Scriptures. I mean, what a, what a cool thing to not just hear about what happened to Jesus, but that it was prophesied about hundreds and hundreds of years before it, over and over again. Thank God for the Scriptures It builds your faith. And just thank God for the gift of salvation in Christ. Uh, We'll pray for just a couple of minutes, then I'll close us out in just a moment.